Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shebimer, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. And his name was so complicated, it doesn't tell us his name. It just tells us that he was the king of Bela, uh, which also is called Zoar. Uh, that, that's the locale. And so four kings of Babylon um, lay a siege against five kings that would be in the area of Jordan Edom, Moab, and Sodom and Gomorrah. That, so if you can picture kind of the south part of the Dead Sea and then a little bit to the east and south of that. That's the area that these uh, kings are. And Babylon lays a, a campaign against them, probably wanting to take over their land. And so the four kings of Babylon against the five kings of the plains where Lot is living. And it says that all these were joined together in the valley of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. In 12 years, they served Chedorlaomer, and so that, that Edomite-Sodomite region um, was subservient via taxes to these Babylonian kings for 12 years, but then in the 13th year, they rebelled. They said, you know what, this is getting ridiculous. Um, we don't want social health care. Uh, we don't care about you know, the Babylonian whatever, and so uh, we're just not doing it. We're not paying taxes, and any time that you don't pay taxes, you get uh, what happens then in verse 5. It says, and in the 14th year came Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him, and they smote the Rephaims in Ashereth, Karnaim and the Zumims in Ham, and the Emims in Shava Kiriathaim. And the Horites in the Mount Seir, that's Edom, unto Alperin, which is by the wilderness. And they returned, and they came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites. So now they're they're getting closer to Sodom. They're moving north. And also the Amorites that dwelt in Hezazan Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the Val of Siddim, or in the Salt Valley. And so these five um, kings that Lot is under, they go out to fight in this rebellion, in this war. So they fought with Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elassar, four kings with five. So four kings against five. And the Vale of Siddim, the Salt Valley, was full of slime pits, I mean, this is like right out of like Lord of the Rings or something, isn't it? <laughs> you know, all this uh, tar, tar puddles or, or, or whatever it is, oil wells that are open, so to speak. And it says that the kings, making it very explosive, by the way, this is going to fit real well into God's fireworks plan in a minute. Um, and, and it says that... Uh, um, it says that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took, and so the Babylonian kings prevail, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals or their food, their supplies, and they went their way. And, verse 12, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. Now notice that. Where is he now? He's living in Sodom. You see, how, you see how sin works? The Bible says all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life 
is not of the Father, but is of the world. And Lot was a man who was ruled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And thus he looked at Sodom, then he pitched his tent towards Sodom, now he dwells in Sodom. And the same thing will happen to anyone who lives their life according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so Lot is taken, and all of his goods... And uh, their um, uh, and and their food and lot taken and departed. And so, um, verse thirteen it says that there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Now this is the first time that this word Hebrew appears in the Bible. It's the first time Abram is called a Hebrew. He never has been before, and it's uh, it's it starts right here. There's the Abraham. The Hebrew. So the name Jew comes from that. Uh, the, the Hebrew peoples. Hebrew literally means, it, the word is Haburai. And what it means is shepherd people. Nomadic shepherd people. And that's what Abram was. You could, you could circle this. I did in my Bible. And I, and I put Abram's ordination. He's Pastor Abraham now. Or Pastor Abram. Because <laughs> that's all. That's what a shepherd is. is a, a pastor, shepherd, same thing. And so God looks at him for the first time and says, he's a shepherd. He's my shepherd. And that's what Abram's about to do the work of a shepherd uh, right now as he hears this news. And so Abram the Hebrew is told, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. So Abram and, and, and these other uh, people that were dwelling near Hebron had made some kind of an alliance wherein they were defending themselves against the, the aggressions of Babylon that was on the move at that time uh, to build an empire. And so it says in verse 14 that when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, notice that he looks at his nephew and calls him his brother, he armed his trained servants, which were born in his own house, 318, and pursued them all the way until Dan. Notice um, Notice that what Abram did with uh, the 318 uh, servants that were born within his own house, that he trained them. He trained the 318 servants that were born in his own house. I wonder, uh, for those of us that are dads, if we're following the example of Abraham in this. Dad, are you training the ones that are being raised up in your own house? When we get to chapter 24... We're going to get a portrait, a very, very intimate portrait of one of the servants that dwelt in Abram's house. He's going to be sent on a mission. And what we're going to see in the life of the servant of Abram is that he had a deeper relationship with God than most New Testament Christians do. He knew how to pray. He knew how to hear from God. He knew how to be led of the Holy Spirit. He knew how to give thanks and worship. I mean, this man was a mature believer in the Lord. This man who is just a servant in Abram's house. I think the number one call that we have as men above anything else is the responsibility that we have towards our families to be leading them and training them in the things of God. And one of the things that God took delight in Abraham over was his diligence to do this. When we get into uh, the, the, the chapters just prior to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe it's in chapter 18 when the angels, the two angels and the Lord, they come to Abram's house to uh, kind of let him know that they're about to go into Sodom uh, where Lot's dwelling again. The rationale that God has 
that makes him want to tell Abram what he's about to do is he says this. You can read it, Genesis 18. We'll get there eventually. He says, let's tell Abraham what we're going to do because I know that he's also going to tell his children and those that come after him. And I believe that that is a, a real key, is that when God sees in us the, the drive, the discipline to train up those that are in our house in the things of God, he gives us more to give to them. I find that to be true in my own life, just in training, teaching my kids the word of God, teaching my kids to pray, talking to them and seeking. And I'm not perfect. I'm not, the, you know, please. <laughs> I know we know what we are, you know, but, but it's in that that God so often gives to us the, the greatest things, you know, um, incredible things. Um, <clears throat> so Abram trained those that were in his house. He taught them the word uh, that he knew. He taught them to pray, taught them to rely upon God, and they did. And so he took the 318 servants that were born in his own house, and he pursued them unto Dan, and he divided himself, so there was strategy, against them, he and his servants by night, and he smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So this is quite remarkable. Because what Abraham just did, with 318 of the servants trained in his own house, five confederate kings and their armies were unable to do. So with 318 trained men, one man of God did what five confederate armies were not able to do. And that's, that should be a lesson to us. The Bible says that one plus God is a multitude. One man who's walking with God and who submitted to, to his Holy Spirit and to his leading is able to accomplish what five armies cannot accomplish. And that's an important thing for us to understand. Very, very uh, important principle. Why do we fear man? When we look at what God can do uh, when we're willing to walk with him and trust in him. It also teaches us that to live in the flesh makes us weak and fractional. Because these Babylonian kings that, that lived completely after the dictates of their human strength were not able to resist the strength of one man of God. And any time that we resign to living according to our flesh rather than living according to the Spirit, we immediately become weaker than what we should be. Our lives become fractional and marginal. And this should have been a warning to Lot, shouldn't it? Because he was living in this place that was overtaken after the flesh, and yet it wasn't. We're going to see Lot's going to go right back uh, to where he was before. Watch what happens with Abraham now that this battle is completed. In verse 17, here comes the temptation. It says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. Be careful anytime you have a victory within your life. Because know this, that anytime you have a victory within your life, there is a plan being forged in the boardroom of hell to try to take you out. And believe it or not, after a great victory is a time of great vulnerability for every one of us. So God uses you to lead someone to Christ. Or he blesses your words as you're counseling with someone. Or you lead a Bible study and God uses it in some way. And you, you leave and you're blessed. You say, God, you be careful. 
The king of Sodom is on his way. Now, in the meantime, before the king of Sodom gets to Abram, watch what happens in verse 18. And here's, here's how you uh, can be sure to beat that temptation. It says, and Melchizedek, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Don't say God bless you. <laughs> the king of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And so this man that we've never heard of, and that we will not see again after this encounter with Abram, until he is just mentioned in Psalm 110, very mysteriously, without any context at all, and then he's gone off the scene until you get to the New Testament book of Hebrews, (laughs) And and then he's explained, and we understand a little bit more about who this man is. This man Melchizedek now comes out, and he meets with Abraham in in this moment. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what his name means. In the book of Hebrews, chapter uh, 7, tells us that. And so it's significant. It's not an accident. It's not just something that we pull out uh, that doesn't mean anything. It also tells us that he's the king of Salem. So his name means king of righteousness, but he is the king of Salem. Now, Salem was the antiquitous name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem Jerusalem means city of peace. Here it's just called Salem or peace. And so this man, name means king of righteousness, His authority is that he's the king of peace. So king of righteousness, king of peace, comes out now with bread and wine to meet Abram after this whole thing. And it tells us that he was, notice it at the end of verse 18, the priest of the most high God. Say, who is this man, this mysterious Melchizedek, who's coming out to meet Abram at this time? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A priest is a mediator. A priest is one who stands for God on behalf of people and stands for people on behalf of God. That's what a priest is. It's a mediator. And 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says that there is one mediator between God and men. That is the man, Christ Jesus. There's one priest in God's mindset and God's view. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so when it tells us here, this king of righteousness, this king of peace with bread and wine, who was the priest, singular, of the Most High God, this is none other than an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ meeting with Abraham with the articles of communion, fellowship, bread and wine, the body and the blood uh, at this moment right here. And then it tells us what he did in verse 19. It says, and he blessed him. So he blessed Abram and he said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice the blessing that he pronounces upon him here, that Abraham is the possessor of heaven and earth. The interesting thing about Abraham and about this study of those that walk in faith is that here's a man who forsook earth for heaven. That's what he did when he left Ur of the Chaldees. It's what he has done in every place that he has gone. Not perfectly, 
but he's forsaken earth for the sake of obtaining heaven. Hebrews 11, which is the the, the hall of faith where it highlights these men from, from times of old. It speaks of Abraham and it says that he left Babylon because he was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. He was leaving off the hope of an earthly life because he wanted something that was greater, heavenly, and eternal. That's what he was seeking. He left earth to get heaven. But do you notice that when a person forsakes earth to get heaven, not only do they get heaven, but they get earth thrown in too. He says, blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And we see that he was both of those things. And here's what we learn um, from, from this. We learn that if you don't possess earth in heaven's record, then you don't possess it at all. Earth is the shadow of the heavenly. We see that over and over again throughout the Bible. Why do we pray on earth as it is in heaven? Because things must be established in heaven before they can come to pass on earth or before they can be held true on earth. It has to be set in heaven to be so. Because heaven is higher than earth. It rules over the earth. And so if you are blessed in heaven, then you will be blessed on earth. If you're blessed on earth but not in heaven, then you cannot hold on to those blessings. But if you're blessed in heaven, then you cannot lose those blessings because earth cannot usurp heaven. And so the greatest thing that we can seek after in our lives is not to be blessed on earth, but rather to be blessed in heaven, to have our names written in his court and to have our whole lives surrendered to his will. Because when God writes his will in heaven for us, nothing on earth can take it away. Now, you see that both Abram and Lot were blessed on earth at the beginning of this chapter. They were both rich. Abraham holds on to his. Lot will lose it. If you're blessed in heaven, you'll be blessed in earth. But if you're not blessed in heaven, then even what you have on earth, you will ultimately lose it. But if you're blessed in heaven, it cannot be taken from you because it's in you. It's, it's from God. He's done it in heaven. Uh, interesting thing to look at in this blessing that's given to him. He's a possessor of heaven and earth. And then it says that he, and blessed be the most high God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. And it says that Abraham gave him tithes of all. So Abraham takes a tenth of all that he has, all the spoils of the battle, everything that he has in his possession, and he now gives it back uh, to him by way of this tithe that's before him. Now, what we see here, first off, is that the the principle of tithing goes way before, predates uh, the law. This is the foundation, uh, if you would, or the principle, even from the beginning of time, uh, of this concept of giving to God. The tithe is the tenth. And what's the purpose of it? The purpose of giving or the purpose of the tithe, beyond the practical, which we all know, you know, yes, God's work, you know, has to go forward and it takes practical things. But why does God uh, um, have us give? Because the Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That the, he's, the Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Bible says that if he was hungry, he wouldn't even tell you. So don't listen when they say God's going to go broke if you don't give. He doesn't, he, he doesn't need, let it go broke, please. You know, he doesn't need our money. He doesn't need anything that we have, but yet he calls us 
to give. Why? Number one is because giving for us is a constant reminder that everything that we have comes from him. It's Lord, I'm just simply giving back to you what is already yours. I would have nothing if it wasn't for the fact that you were giving this to me to begin with. And, and to separate from it in that way forces me to remember that. Lord, this isn't mine. This is yours. You gave it to me. It all came from you. Second thing that it is, and it's very practical, useful for the Christian, is that it's a constant release. It's a constant releasing of what holds me bound to this world. And that's essential for you and I, because understand that everything that we have in this life, we will one day leave behind. You cannot take any of it with you. None of it. Not one bit. And it's a constant releasing of those things. The Bible calls us to have very weak roots in this world and to be willing to leave it in just one instant, because that's going to happen, whether by death or by the trumpet. There will come a day when we will leave it all behind, and and we're called to constantly release that to him. And then the third reason, and this is where we, you know, we catch it in the context here, is that it is a constant defense against temptation, a certain type of temptation. Watch what happens now in verse 21. It says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, so he comes now, here comes the temptation. Thank God he had good devotions just before it. He says, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. He says, I've got a proposition for you, Abram. I noticed that you've got 318 servants, well-trained, very useful. They did what me and all the rest couldn't do. I'll tell you what, I would like some of those servants, or maybe even all of those servants. And in exchange, you can keep every bit of the spoils, all of the riches, everything that was taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, that place that was well-watered, the place of prosperity. You will multiply your portfolio into the billions Just let me have the servants. Let me have the souls. You can have the stuff. Do you hear the slithering serpent (laughs) in what he comes to us and what he says? You give me the souls. You can have the stuff. How many men fall to that temptation? Don't worry about your kids. Don't worry about your wife. You go get the stuff. It's dangerous. And Abraham, and here's the defense, said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one that possesses heaven and earth. You don't possess the heaven and the earth. It's not yours to give. He's the one that gives it. And he has given to me what he sees fit for me to have. So that, verse 23, I will not take from a thread even to a shoelace. And that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So I'm not taking a thread from a sneaker from you. 
I will trust completely in the Lord for what it is that he wants me to have. And then he says, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. He says, anybody else who has any stake in this battle, they can decide for themselves if they want, if they want to uh, you know, do what they want to do. But as far as it concerns me, my household, my servants, I will not take anything from you. Uh, that is in um, your hand to give to me, lest you should glory uh, against me in that way. Listen, when we have in our proper perspective who God is and who we are in light of who God is, that is the strength that we'll have in, in, in times of temptation when, when, it, when it comes to us in this way. We have a clear portrait in this segment of Scripture of two men that looked exactly the same on the outside. At the beginning of the chapter, you would, not, you would say these are two Christian men that have both been prospered by God. But yet when you look under the surface a little bit, don't you see a totally different picture? You see Abram, who was surrendered to God, walking with God. And you see Lot, who was a man after his flesh. One was heavenly minded, one was earthly minded. Both saved. Father, we just thank you today, Lord, as we consider um, this segment, Lord, of Abram's life and the things that you uh, did and built into him. And we also receive the warning, Lord, as we look at Lot and, um, and we see, Lord, the, 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 the clear picture of this world and its strength to tempt us and draw us away. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would just give us a quietness in our hearts and a clarity to be able to see our lives through the lens of these things. And we would pray this morning, Lord, that where our priorities are out of whack, or where we're walking according to the sight of our eyes, or the power of our own intellect, or where we've given ourselves to a purpose that in the end will prove to be futility, we ask, Father, that you would make those adjustments and that you would give us the grace and wisdom to surrender and yield. Lord, we thank you that you never stop, that you'll complete the work that you began. And so give us a Melchizedek experience, Lord. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see earth through the lens of heaven. And help us to comprehend your plan and to embrace that, leaving the world behind. And so we ask these things this morning, and we thank you for this text and this challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.